Hello and welcome to Purdy's podcast. Today's letter is on the period between the two world wars and the rise to power of the Nazis in Germany. The letter is divided into two podcasts. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Purdy's podcast. Today we're going to be covering the historical period between the two world wars and examining in detail the failure of the international diplomatic structures that led to the second great conflagration of the 20th century. We'll also be looking at the original causes of and first stages of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. This letter is dedicated to the memory of all of those lost in the Second World War and the Holocaust and to their survivors. Um, never again. Many people have described World War I as a lost cause, <clears throat> wasteful of lives and money and pointless. After all, 20 years after the war ended, another world war began. It's wrong, though, to blame the people of the 1920s for everything that came afterward. The Allies and their former enemies did make some progress toward a permanent peace in the 1920s, but they faced some big, obvious problems, which I'll go into detail below. The world was lucky, too, in the 1920s, because no huge diplomatic crises popped up. That would change in the 1930s. Things got super hectic in that decade. Without the United States, too disappointed and disillusioned from its role in the First World War, the Soviet Union, too busy launching the world's first communist state, or Germany, ostracized, the League of Nations lacked the three potentially strongest countries in the world in its membership. So Britain and France led the world. This was problematic because both countries were totally into their empires. And so anytime a problem came up in Africa or Asia, neither could speak up for human rights because they were oppressing their own colonies. Europe's peace ends in Africa, Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. Pardon me. While historians have always focused on Europe as the place where the Nazis gained power and where World War II began, It was Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 that really broke the back of the diplomatic order. The Italians wanted to build an African empire like the ancient Romans had, and they also sought revenge against Ethiopia. Ethiopia's Emperor Menelik II's army defeated Italian invaders at the Battle of Adwa on March 1st, 1896, and Italy still smarted from this loss to a non-European army. In 1935, Italy used tanks, airplanes, and dropped deadly mustard gas on Ethiopian villages. The Italians also placed prisoners and civilians in Ethiopia in concentration camps in a dress rehearsal for World War II. His resistance to Italy, Time magazine named Emperor Haile Selassie Man of the Year for 1935. While most high school history textbooks give little attention to Ethiopia's ordeal in the 1930s, Even those that discuss it limit their analyses to the effects of the crisis on the League of Nations and world peace, yet it is especially important in an American high school classroom to note that this crisis led to a surge in Pan-African feeling and great pride among African Americans for their African roots. Marcus Garvey, originally from Jamaica, had already been arguing for Pan-African ideals in the 1920s, and this thread continued to run through the 1930s. While the United States maintained only off and on diplomatic relations with Ethiopia, 
and had reestablished embassy there in 1925 under President Coolidge, the most visible representative of Ethiopia in the U.S. was Professor William Leo Hansberry, a member of Howard University's Department of History, where he had begun the first African civilization courses and where his classes were always full of students, including lots of students from Africa. Malaku Bayan, the first Ethiopian student to attend Howard, served the crown prince of Ethiopia, who would soon become Emperor Haile Selassie, as a page and attendant. He recalled, My belief in race solidarity caused me to select Howard University for my studies in order that I might have a closer contact with my people. <clears throat> Pardon me. The groundwork was laid for African Americans to feel greatly sympathetic then. Greatly sympathetic. <clears throat> when Ethiopia was invaded, African Americans wrote to the Ethiopian Research Council and to Emperor Haile Selassie, volunteering to serve in Ethiopia's army, and demanded to know why President Roosevelt was not taking action to support Ethiopia. In July 1934, Dan Holmes wrote to, wrote to President Roosevelt asking, why can't the black people fight against Italy? We have fought out for the white peoples. Why can't you help the black people out? Orlando Andrews of New York City wrote to Roosevelt that the Ethiopians who live in the United States fought for this country in the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican, the Spanish-American, and the World War, and yet they are treated the same way after every war. You were the head into drawing of the Kellogg Peace Pact Treaty and now have deferred from your treaty. What must the world think of you? And John A. Diaz of Tucson, Arizona, wrote to the State Department claiming that 50,000 Americans of African descent are ready to leave for Ethiopia for the express purpose of defending that country's independence. In my lectures, I come in contact with numerous African Americans, ex-soldiers, mechanics, and professionals who are eager to go to the aid of Ethiopia in her hour of suffering. Finally, African American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois summarized the, import, the importance of the Ethiopian crisis for the African diaspora worldwide. He said, Italy has forced the world into a position where, whether or not she wins, race hate will increase. Black men and brown men have indeed been aroused as seldom before. If there were any chance effectively to recruit men, money, and machines of war among the 100 millions of Africans outside of Ethiopia, the results would be enormous. This worldwide solidarity Malcolm X returned to in the 1960s. It took a year for Italy to take Addis Ababa, Ethiopia's capital, and even then fighting went on until 1939. Ethiopia's emperor Haile Selassie escaped and asked for help at the League of Nations, and there's a photo below in the, in the letter. As he stepped down from the lectern, attendees reported he muttered, it is us today, it will be you tomorrow. Britain and France, who had African empires of their own, refused to give Ethiopia military aid, and while they discussed placing economic sanctions on Italy, did nothing in the end. On to the Spanish Civil War. From 1936 to 1939, it was a dress rehearsal for World War II. Over in Spain, a popular front of liberal, socialist, and communist groups headed Spain's new republic in 1936. Their policies angered the conservative parties and the Catholic Church because they wanted to redistribute land for the peasants and cut down the influence of the church. General Francisco Franco rallied the Spanish army in Spain's colony in Morocco and North Africa, 
crossed over to Spain and began a civil war against the Republic. Franco was helped by Mussolini and Hitler with Italian troops volunteering to fight and German Stuka dive bombers practicing their moves for the Second World War. The Spanish Civil War was savage, and Pablo Picasso mem memorialized it in his painting Guernica from 1937, which is included in the letter. The Republic received arms and money from the Soviet Union, and American volunteers formed the, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, but Franco's army was just too well supplied. On March 29th, 1939, Franco entered Madrid, Madrid, declaring, I orden en el país, there is order in the country, and España una grande, libre, Spain one great and free. The Western allies missed the chance to stop the fascists in Spain, and also the chance to work with the Soviet Union diplomatically. Britain and France were frightened of communism, and Franco was a general fighting with African colonial troops. He was not too different from them. Class, you can see in the example of Ethiopia and Spain and Morocco, how closely tied Africa is to events in Europe. And this would remain true in World War II as well. While they are two separate continents, for much of recorded history, their destinies are linked. On to the post-war world in Europe and how it led to World War II, we'll pick back, we'll pick back up with that when we're back on with Purdy's podcast. Until then, take a break, grab a drink and we'll see you momentarily. Okay, you're back on with Purdy's podcast, and now we're going to be talking about the diplomatic situation in Europe after the First World War, the winners of, of the First World War and their problems. Before talking about France's problems, let's remember that Paris bloomed like a brief spring cherry blossom in the 1920s. For possibly the last time in history, Paris was the true center of world power, cultural, culture, and influence. Everyone wanted to be in Paris. 15 to 40,000 Americans made it their home in the 1920s, including many African Americans, such as Eugene Bullard, Josephine, Bull Josephine Baker, there's a picture of her in the letter, Dancing the Charleston in 1926, and Langston Hughes, also a picture of Langston Hughes in the letter as well, who found a home in a city that was not so relentlessly obsessed with race and ideas of white supremacy, as in the United States. Opportunities arose in Paris that had not existed before. The war had changed gender relations, with French women taking jobs in factories, working as war nurses and ambulance drivers. Gone then was the fancy schmancy era of corsets and lace. Designers like Coco Chanel, below a 1920 pictured, made new kinds of clothes for women, collared shirts and ties, suits, jersey dresses, the first little black dress, and comfortable but elegant shoes. But France had diplomatic problems. Uh, let's not get it twisted. First, France only agreed to the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the First World War, because at Versailles, the Americans and British promised to come to France's help if it were attacked by Germany again. President Woodrow Wilson sat there and swore his word on it in 1919 and the French agreed to the Versailles Treaty based on his word. The French, the French generals were very angry with the treaty, the military, because they felt they were defenseless without a big buffer between France and Germany. Marshal Fer uh, Ferdinand Falk wrote on March 31st, 1919, if we do not hold the Rhineland permanently, there is no neutralization, no disarmament, 
no written clause of any nature which can prevent Germany from breaking out and gaining the upper hand. No aid could arrive in time from England or America to save France from complete defeat. But then what happened, class, was that the U.S. Senate refused to back President Wilson's promises, and the French lost their American guarantee. France felt betrayed and never really trusted American words again after that, especially once the U.S. refused to join the League of Nations. And according to American war correspondent William Shire, an eyewitness to all these accounts, to all these events, it's doubtful Hitler would have invaded France if the U.S. had guaranteed it would go to war over it. But there was no guarantee, and so Hitler did end up invading France. Oddly, the First World War left the main loser, Germany, stronger, at least in the long run, than the main winners, Britain and France. Well, how is this possible? That's possible for the following reasons. First, Germany was never invaded, and the country was unscathed physically. Secondly, Germany had 70 million people at the end of the First World War, and France only had 40 million. Thirdly, a large part of northern France was ravaged, and France didn't have the money to rebuild. They assumed the Germans would pay for all the damage through war reparations, which they did not. Many countries suffered terrible casualties in the First World War, but France could not absorb its losses as easily as Germany. France suffered one and a half million war deaths, which meant that in years to come, there were an estimated two million fewer births. In 1939, when World War II started, Germany had 9 million men ages 20 to 34, and France only had 4 million. Knowing its population dilemma, in the 1930s, France hunkered down and decided to just play defense. In 1929, France's defense minister, André Maginot, began a huge defense line of fortifications and trenches from the far southern border with Germany all the way north to the Belgian border. The trenches were big and roomy with, mo with movie theaters and kitchens underground and were even air conditioned. Yes, the French were ready if war came with Germany. They'd just hop in their Maginot line and wait it out, pounding the Germans with their big guns. The problem was that their big guns only faced toward Germany and were mostly not reversible. So if the Germans could get behind the Maginot line, then the French would be in big trouble. Yet not everyone wanted to huddle, huddle in the trenches once war came. French-German officers like Charles de Gaulle argued that special tank units be created that could sprint on ahead and break holes in enemy lines. Instead, the French sprinkled their tanks across the long battle line, and so they watered down their effectiveness. The Germans read de Gaulle's recommendations, however, and they created their special tank units. And with these panzers overwhelmed France in 1940. Mostly, though, the French just weren't in the mood after the bloodshed of World War I to go driving around in tanks taking the offense. They just wanted to be left alone. France mainly focused on its colonial empire between the wars, taking their eye off Germany. Colonial leaders like Ho Chi Minh in French Indochina, today Vietnam, demanded independence for their countries after the First World War. After all, According to President Wilson, that war had been fought for self-determination of all nations. The French didn't see it that way. Their empire from French West Africa to Syria and Lebanon to Southeast Asia had 100 million people, more than twice that of France, 
And by 1940, one third of France's exports were going to different parts of the French Empire. France was making a lot of money off its colonies and wanted to keep them. Keeping an empire, though, meant that when Hitler and Mussolini and Japanese militarists wanted to build their own empires, France had no moral right to stop them. They were abusing their own colonies, so how they found it hard to criticize other countries' actions, as when Italy invaded Ethiopia, was very difficult. Finally, France could not depend anymore on a big ally to Germany's east, like Russia, to help it any longer. The Soviet Union had replaced Russia in 1917, and France, especially the conservative political parties, feared the Soviets more than they feared Germany. France tried to patch together smaller alliances with Poland or with Czechoslovakia, but these weren't as effective as the old Franco-Russian alliance. Britain's problems. On to, the, on, to the, on to Great Britain, to the United Kingdom. After the First World War, the British Empire extended to its greatest geographic area, thanks to colonies taken from the Germans. Also, Britain was given mandates by the new League of Nations to rule Palestine, Iraq, and Jordan, carved out of the former Ottoman Empire. France ruled Syria and Lebanon. Finally, while its power there was unofficial, Britain had strong influence over Iran, too especially now that the Russians were in revolutionary chaos. Britain sat on top of a huge part of the world's oil reserves, and this would prove crucial in the next world war, with ships moving from coal-powered to oil-powered engines, and lots of trucks and tanks and jeeps wheeling around the battlefields. Like France, Great Britain also had big problems between the wars. First, Britain was in deep debt, mainly to the United States from, from World War I, and cut its army from 3.5 million men in 1918 to 370,000 in 1920, just two years later, to save money. Secondly, unemployment stayed high after the war because British women hung on to their industrial jobs, unlike in Germany and France where they were forced out. Thirdly, the empire was ruinously expensive to maintain because the colonies were getting harder to keep in line. There were terrible revolts in India, leading to a British massacre of civilians in 1919, Iraq, and in Palestine in the 1920s and 1930s. Maintaining garrisons throughout the empire was getting very hard, especially if the local people did not want to serve king and empire anymore. India especially wanted independence and pointed, pointed to the two million Indian soldiers who had served in World War I. Hadn't they paid enough to Britain in the, in the letter? We've inserted a picture of a statue commemorating the March to the Sea in 1930, which Gandhi led in protest of a British salt tax. Fourth, the Ottoman Empire was weak, but it kept Egypt and the Middle East more peaceful and stable than the British ever did. Add to this that during World War I, the British promised both the Arabs and the Jews living in Palestine their own independent states during the First World War, the Balfour Declaration of 1917. And there was a terrific amount of drama in the empire between the wars. Fifth, back in the British Isles, the working poor and even the middle class had grown super sick of waiting on the upper classes and deferring to them, as can be seen in period dramas such as Downton Abbey. There were never enough good jobs or decent housing for the masses of people. Returning soldiers asked each other, what have we been fighting for? Nothing back home had changed for the better. Sixth, and finally, 
Ireland wanted home rule, and when the Irish tried to revolt during Easter 1916, the British took troops away from France where they were desperately needed to crush the Irish rebels. There were 200,000 Irish soldiers fighting for Britain in France, by the way, and many wondered if they were fighting the right enemy there. Irish opinion was mixed on the rebellion, and many didn't support it. Yet when the British brutally crushed the revolt and executed many of its leaders, Irish opinion turned decisively against British rule. The rebellion is mournfully recounted by the chieftains and Sinead O'Connor in the Foggy Dew. I'm not a big Ultimate Fighting Championship fan, but evidently Conor McGregor has used this song in the past as his entrance music. The song's lyrics reference Sulva and Sid Elbar, sites in the Gallipoli campaign when Britain was fighting the Ottoman Empire, lamenting that Irish soldiers fought Turks instead of their British occupiers. With all of these problems, the British just wanted peace and quiet in Europe. They returned to an attitude of splendid isolation, where they focused on their empire and home islands. This created an opening for the Nazis in the 1930s to swiftly return Germany to military power in Europe. <clears throat> all right, class, take a break. And when you come back, we're going to pick up with Italy, the forgotten ally from World War I, and the home of the first fascist state in Europe after the First World War. Thanks a lot, and you're on with Purdy's podcast. All right, welcome back to Purdy's podcast. We'll discuss Italy, the forgotten ally from the First World War. It was a sad and misguided decision for Italy to join in the First World War. They weren't fighting for any high-minded goals, but to preserve their status as a great power and to try to rip territory from Austria-Hungary. Italy suffered horrific casualties in the war, 500 to 600,000 dead and a million wounded, and then felt, felt ignored at the Versailles Peace Conference. Many ex-soldiers were terribly satisfied. <laughs> Many ex-soldiers were terribly dissatisfied with the war's outcome, but also were energized by having fought for their country. Fascist leader Benito Mussolini was a veteran himself and a journalist too. His newspaper was popular after the war and publicized his party's goals. The fascists, named after the ancient Roman fascists, <clears throat> a bundle of rods and an axe at the end, it's a picture below in the letter, promoted a socialist agenda in favor of improved infrastructure like roads, railroads, and sewers government investment in housing and jobs programs for the unemployed, imperial expansion abroad, especially in Africa, and opposition to communism. Mussolini pulled off the political heist of all time in 1922 when he marched on Rome above in the letter picture with thousands of his followers, creating a national crisis and then demanded to the King Victor Emmanuel that he be named prime minister. Class, the army could have scattered his fascists at any time, but they were sympathetic to Mussolini. The king buckled under the pressure and gave Mussolini power, which he would hold until the Italians themselves ousted him in 1943 after the Americans and British invaded Italy. Now under the Soviet Union, Russia in the First World War changed the Soviet Union after the First World War, after the end of the Cold War, Back to Russia. <laughs> World Civ. The Bolsheviks, communists, spent from October 1917 through 1920 just trying to take permanent control of the former Tsar's empire. The new Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, 
was entirely focused on itself through the 1920s, not joining the League of Nations and remaining sort of an exotic mystery to the world. Lenin hoped that the USSR would be an example to the world and ignite a global communist revolution. We never know how they might have turned out because the Red Army, the USSR's army, was decisively defeated by Poland in 1920 and one of the decisive battles in history. Had the Red Army plowed through Poland, a large communist party in Germany was ready to rise up and take over with their help. And then it's impossible to speculate what might have happened. Perhaps an earlier Cold War and no Hitler? We don't know. But in reality, the Red Army lost. And Lenin was forced to admit that communism was going to be bottled up in the USSR for a while. So the Soviets worked hard to build the USSR up, beginning with Lenin's new economic plan in 1921, where a modest amount of capitalism and private ownership was allowed in order to kickstart the economy. Lenin had no time to do much else because from 1921 to 1924, he got sicker and sicker, finally dying in 1924 after suffering a third stroke. I mean, we think, right? Um, at the time, Leon Trotsky, another major communist, accused Joseph Stalin of poisoning Lenin, and we're not exactly sure what happened. We're not sure what, is it, what his sickness was, whether he was poisoned or whether syphilis or some other disease caused his death. But Lenin warned against Joseph Stalin being allowed to replace him, but his advice was ignored. Yosef Vissarionovich Zhugashivli, Joseph Stalin, <laughs> he rebranded himself, was born in Georgia, not our Georgia, um, the Georgia in the former Soviet Union in 1879, and was not ethnically Russian. His father was a terrible alcoholic, and his mom a devout member of the Russian Orthodox Church. She sent her son to be educated in a religious school by a famous Orthodox monk, but none of the religious training took root. Stalin was always in trouble, and after school got arrested a bunch of times for petty crimes. He joined the Bolshevik Party and gained fame nationwide in, 19, in Russia in 1908 by pulling off the biggest armed robbery in Russian history when he and his gang held up one of the Tsar's treasury carriages. Thugs were in high demand in the tough days of the end of the Russian Empire, and Stalin was good at his work, a skilled liar, and a brutal commander. His military exploits in the Russian Civil War helped him cling to the heights of power in the Communist Party until he was ready to take over for Lenin. Stalin was a pretty odd guy, living in one small room in the huge Kremlin government complex. His daughter took care of him. Both his former wives were dead, the second evidently driven to suicide by him. Stalin slept all day and worked all night. He rarely made public speeches or traveled abroad, and to relax, he'd head down to his country estate, or dacha in Russian. When he traveled by train, five identical trains were booked, and each had a body double for Stalin to throw off possible assassins. Now, Stalin, who's pictured in the letter below, was not the ablest possible replacement for Lenin. No, that was Leon Trotsky, also pictured. Trotsky built the Red Army from scratch, was a genius in organization, sending troops and supplies on the railroads and ruthlessly wiping out Tsarist resistance from the White Army. Trotsky was a hero of the Civil War, but peacetime was hard for him. He alienated many of his fellow leaders, and he was Jewish, and the new USSR carried along with it a deep strain of anti-Semitism from the old Russia. 
While Stalin purged many of the leaders of the October 1917 revolution, Trotsky escaped and criticized the regime until he was finally silenced, assassinated in his Mexico City home in 1940. Stalin's main economic priority for the USSR was industrialization, and the Soviets pushed forward with several five-year plans in the 1920s and 1930s, where tremendous state investment led to significant gains in industrial production. The primary areas were electric power, steel, coal, and chemical production. That said, had World War I not occurred, there would probably not have been a revolution either. Tsarist Russia would have outpaced Stalin's five-year plans just based on its progress up to 1914. Stalin's other major program was collectivization, and there's posters below, where millions of small farmers, kulaks, were forced into huge government-run farms. Those who resisted giving up their land to the state were killed or imprisoned. The new government-run farms were inefficient, and there was an immediate 30% drop in farm production. Further, an estimated 15 million people died, especially in the Ukraine, the breadbasket of the USSR, in order to carry out these collectivization plans. This was important when Germany invaded the USSR in 1941, as, Ukrainian, as some Ukrainians welcomed the invaders because they were so bitter towards Stalin. But after learning how the Germans were as occupiers, they hated both Stalin and Hitler. The USSR was diplomatically isolated from the West, but curiously got along well with Germany, especially in the 1920s. Soviet and German military officers trained with their units on each other's territory, beyond the view of allied eyes, and carried on a brisk trade in military equipment too. The West, including France, Britain, and the United States, were just as terrified, if not more so, of communism as they were of fascism and Nazism. So unlike in 1914, when Russia was an ally against Germany, in the 1920s and 1930s, Germany and the USSR were potential enemies. And the West's position, I'm sorry, unlike in 1914 when Russia was an ally with France and Britain against Germany, in the 1920s and 1930s, Germany and the USSR were potential friends. And the West's position was therefore much weaker than it had been before World War I. It's easy to look back from 2021 and ask why the Western allies didn't simply hook up with Stalin to fight Hitler from the start. And the answer is simple. The West hated Stalin just as much as they hated Hitler, and they feared the USSR even more than they feared Nazi Germany. Okay, this letter uh, has covered quite a lot um, from Ethiopia to the Spanish Civil War to the problems... Uh, in diplomacy Britain and France had to the rise of fascism in Italy and communism in the Soviet Union. So we'll wrap up this letter. And when we're back on with our next episode of Purdy's podcast, we'll discuss Germany and the rise of the Nazis. Until then, thank you for being on with Purdy's podcast. And I'll see you later.